You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 26th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The International Court of Justice goes further than Israel would have liked, not as far as Israel's accusers would prefer. Finland prepares to choose a new president, and the opening contests of the US presidential election set a daunting standard of undignified weirdness. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily and the Monocle staffers whose pleas about a sick pet were least convincing are Thomas Lewis, Georgina Godwin, Chris Chermack and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs plus one very familiar former Monocle radio voice returns as Finland prepares to vote. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and we will start in The Hague, where the International Court of Justice has passed an interim ruling in the case brought against Israel by South Africa, which alleged that Israel was effectively committing genocide as it waged its current war against Hamas in Gaza. The ruling places Israel under instruction to prevent acts of genocide, but stopped notably and for South Africa disappointingly short of insisting upon a ceasefire. joined with more on this from The Hague by Steve Crawshaw, the author, journalist and former UK Human Rights Watch director. Um, Steve, first of all, the judgment itself, is any amount of it a surprise? Um, I don't know it's exactly a surprise. I mean, there's no reason why they shouldn't have found this. Um, we've Anyone who's been watching the news at all has been able to see pretty troubling things have been going on in Gaza and the incitement to genocide, which they they emphasized, has also been there absolutely in plain sight. I think that it still came as a huge moment when it happened because there have been very few challenges to the dominant narrative, not just of Israel, but of Western governments, especially Washington, but also others, who've refused to confront really the scale of what's happening. So I think that has raised some really, really interesting issues um, by, you know, by speaking by speaking truth to power, simply. Uh, there's a couple of things there I want to come back to about differing attitudes to this conflict in those different parts of the world. But to the judgment itself, why would the ICJ have stopped short of unequivocal demanding, not that the ICJ has any legally enforceable power, but nevertheless, uh, they did demand that Russia cease firing in Ukraine in 2022. They did not in this instance. Do we understand why not? They they did. They avoided that. And it was interesting that South Africa has reacted with great um, unhappiness on that. I think that um, they, they stuck with what they feel really confident on. So in the case of Russia, it was clearly, uh, to most independent observers, completely unprovoked. And and the case of the International Court of Justice case that Ukraine brought was like, you're accusing us, the Ukrainians, of doing genocide. No, we're not. But that's why you're trying to invade. And that was indeed what Russia itself had said, was that Ukrainians were committing Jewish genocide and therefore... And so they pushed back on that hard and said, you must stop this military activity. And the Russians basically said, um, go and get lost and and you've got it all wrong. Um, In this case, 
it of course began with this horrific day of murder in on the 7th of October in particularly horrific context the the Hamas and other armed groups what they were doing and that's a pretty complicated story because clearly if you have been attacked in a horrible way then you are allowed to respond and so I think rather than go into that um, they stuck with something which Israel has denied any sense of war crimes, but it was clear that the court um, overwhelmingly, and this was like all of the, the votes were 15 to 2 or, or 16 to 1. So the court judges all felt deeply uncomfortable. It's not yet ruled that it is genocide, but absolutely its ruling said you must take great steps to make sure these various things don't happen and enlisted genocidal acts. I, I do want to pick up on that point about what it tells us about differing attitudes to different conflicts, because of course, as we have been discussing, this case was brought by South Africa. Uh, but South Africa is one of the most prominent countries which has been notably equivocal uh, about Russia's onslaught against against Ukraine. What do we divine from that? I think we divine what you're already hinting at, really, which is that we are facing a massive north-south political divide, which kind of comes as no surprise to anyone who's been watching politics in in recent years. The the BRICS group, um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and and South Africa, all of those things are setting themselves up as the kind of the the non-Western bloc and everything that goes. And you're quite right that South Africa has been pretty problematic in terms of Ukraine. The Kenyan ambassador, interestingly, uh, two years ago, spoke up very, very strongly in condemnation of Russia. And, uh, you know, others have done so a bit as well. But that's been tricky. I think that South Africa has, to be honest, from their perspective, played a bit of a blinder. They have seized the political initiative to turn that around. The accusations against South Africa that it was failing to back Ukraine, which was clearly the innocent victim for, again, for any independent any um, independent observer, but they were failing to back um, uh, Ukraine strongly. They've now turned it down and absolutely shone the spotlight on the Western backers of Israel. Clearly, this is difficult for Israel, for Netanyahu and his partners, who immediately kind of say, oh, nonsense, nonsense, this is all absurd. And one Israeli minister called it Hague Shmeg, uh, gives us a sense of where they're going to go with this. But Washington is a much more difficult territory. Are we really going to see Washington is now going to be attacking the International Court of Justice, the UN's World Court? That's a pretty difficult place for Washington go and to go. And it's pretty remarkable that senior US officials had been publicly dissing the South African initiative even before the judges had spoken. It was pretty stupid even then. But now that the judges have spoken, I think they look very foolish indeed. So in a sense, South Africa has really Really highlighted that north-south divide and said, excuse me, we are really looking at hypocrisy. South Africa itself, to be honest, can also be seen as being hypocritical in the past, and it's been uh, in many different contexts, including very much in the justice context. But in this place, the spotlight, I would say, and I think many would say, is clearly on Washington, to some extent London and other European capitals. You've got a couple of European countries like Ireland, Spain, and a couple of others who, who have spoken out. But mostly, um, certainly Britain and most 
the European Union have pretty much sat on their hands on this one. Steve Croshaw in The Hague, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. Finnish voters will go to the polls on Sunday to choose a new president to succeed term, succeed rather, term-limited incumbent Asali Nanisto, who has served the maximum of two six-year terms. Current polling suggests a handy lead for former Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Alexander Stubb, ahead of former Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto. Long-standing listeners to Monocle Radio will now be delighted to learn that leaving Monocle Radio has not been enough to get Marcus Hippie off the hook where commenting on Finnish affairs is concerned. Uh, the press councillor at Finland's UK Embassy, as Marcus now is, joins me in the studio now. Marcus, welcome back. We can't keep you away. Thank you very much. It's it's so nice to be back and it's nice to notice that you have still kept your Finnish skills. <laughs> uh, we're, we're doing our best to hone them in your absence, Marcus. Um, first of all, before we talk about this election itself, I, I wondered if you could just explain for our international listeners a bit about the role of the Finnish presidency, because it is, it is quite a strange and ambiguous one. It's it's quite a strange one in in the European context. I'm, I'm trying to kind of simplify it a little bit to make it more understandable. So unlike in many other European countries where you have presidents, the role of the president in Finland is, is actually something that comes with a fair amount of power. Mm. Unlike in, say, Germany or Estonia, where presidents are mostly in ceremonial roles in Finland, the president actually does have power, which focuses in foreign policy. So the Finnish president is leading in foreign policy in cooperation with the government, which means that you won't see the president joining discussions about what the tax rate in Finland should be, for example, or how social services should be organized, because the president's focus will be on how Finland represents itself on the world stage and how Finland deals with the rest of the world. And also I have to say that another important thing about the Finnish president is that that they decide on all officer appointments in the Finnish Defence Forces in the role of a Supreme Commander. They also decide on the mobilisation of the Defence Forces, were that to be needed. Well, let's look then at the two principal contenders, uh, both Stubb and Harvesto, in that context, because uh, I have interviewed both of them uh, for the Foreign Desk and indeed also Finland's uh, chief military officer. And it has not struck me that in terms of foreign policy, at least, there are enormous differences between them. I mean, when we look at the two contenders in particular, uh, Stubb and Harvesto, do they really differ on any anything meaningful? Well, you know, this is the thing that's really really interesting at the moment, because as you mentioned, Finns are quite united when it comes to these questions I was describing earlier, how we represent ourselves in the world and what we do with the world. Mm. So when you look at election debates, for example, sometimes it gets even a little bit tenuous when the journalists are trying to find those differences. (laughs) And for example, just last night we saw an election debate organized by the Finnish broadcasting company, where they were actually asking more about issues that are domestic, facing a lot of criticism about that, because once again, that is not something the Finnish president would be dealing directly with. But the Finnish broadcasting company's argument for doing that was that this was their way of trying to find some differences and get a better picture about the values these presidents or presidential candidates represent. Because obviously, when you are a president in Finland, that position comes with some natural 
gravitas, which means that you will be listened to regardless mm. whether what you talk about is in your territory or not. But if I mention something, I was trying to find some differences between, for example, Stoop and Harvester, and I was able to find something from recent recent questionnaires and, and, and interviews they've been giving. And one thing they totally disagree with each other mm. is the question about whether nuclear weapons should be allowed to be brought to the Finnish territory as a NATO member, as Finland is. There's, there's, there's another question about whether women should also be be expected to join conscription mm-hmm. to do military service or civil service and there's some disagreement over there as well for example and then they were asked about some domestic issues taxes and social services and you can find some some disagreements over there as well so does it often end up just coming down to a question of style where the president is concerned voters just choose the one that they think you know is more in keeping with their own particular values and prejudices or they just might think might may cut more of a dash on the world stage? Well, I think these candidates come with their own followers anyway from their political background when they've been representing different parties and when they've been in domestic politics before. But I think I think it's very much about the style in this case. And also there's always the question about what a president should be like mm. and look like and how to behave. <laughs> and, and and there are different arguments now. So, for example, in the case of Harvey, he's, he's a very seasoned, experienced politician. There's a lot of trust and he's been in very difficult places. During his career, he gets a lot of respect for that. Then Alexander Stubb, on the other hand, he may have a little bit shorter career, but then you see that he's an amazing person when it comes to dealing with the media. He's, he's an amazing person when it comes to networking. Mm. He's very globally minded. He speaks who knows how many languages. <laughs> I've seen this video clip of him giving answers to journalists back to back in something like five languages. So I think it's very much about. What are you looking for when it when it comes to someone as a president? And I think it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen. And and I have to say that I think we've got a very good selection of candidates this time around. It should also be noted, obviously, that it looks likely that we will get a second round. Mm. So unless on Sunday there's a candidate who gets more than fifty percent, or at least fifty percent, we'll see another round. And then we have to talk about all these things again in about two and a half <laughs> weeks' time, Andrew. Uh, it, it would be a pleasure, Marcus. Uh, just before we let you go, this. This time, though, we are about to talk about a different presidential election, i.e. the one in the United States, which is not so far uh, being conducted in tones of peak uh, Socratic dignity. Um, I did want to ask a bit about what is the general mood of a Finnish presidential election? Is there lots of screaming and bun throwing and people striking dramatic poses or is this all conducted as Finnish discourse very often is in extremely short sentences? It's been it's, it's it's been interesting to see this because I feel like I guess it's always been like this before, but there's such a mass- massive contrast to what you see with, for example, in the United States. I Everything is very respectable. Everything is very <laughs> proper in Finland. Like you are not actually hearing that many populist, you know, sentences or comments over there at all. It's all very proper, almost old-school politics, which is something I quite like. Marcus Hippie, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily.
You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller, and it has been, as it so very often is, an eventful week in the United States, where the wretched spectacle of a former and possibly future president in court answering the defamation suit of a woman he is already adjudged to have sexually assaulted is genuinely struggling for headlines. Well, I am joined now by Monocle's senior news editor, Chris Chermack, and by Monocle's Toronto correspondent, Thomas Lewis. Um, Chris, we were just hearing there from Marcus about how a Finnish presidential election is all terribly dignified and solemn and serious and intelligent and proper and old school. Chance would be a fine thing, wouldn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's been, I don't know, how can you sum up this week except with the fact that we started with what was an election in New Hampshire Mm -hmm. and we ended with another series of trials with Donald Trump taking the stand and also an advisor of his, Peter Navarro, being sentenced to four months in prison. So this is this is really what we can expect, I think, going forward. It is See, this strange the, lurching from one to the other, from campaigns to courtrooms. Th- but this is what I mean. The Peter Navarro story in normalish times would have blown everything out of the water for a week. <laughs> this is a big deal. Senior advisor to the potential future president ends up in the clink. Until you mentioned it just now, I'd kind of forgotten that had happened. Absolutely. It just kind of fades into the background of everything else that we could potentially talk about that has happened this week. So yes, I absolutely agree with you. It is a big deal. He is getting four months in prison for defying a congressional subpoena to show up for the uh, in, for looking into the January 6th uh, attacks on the Capitol. The strangest part of something like this in the current times is he will serve four months, so that will give him plenty of time to potentially still come out in time to join a Trump administration should there be one in 2025. Well, on the subject, and to bring in Thomas Lewis now, uh, of people who could conceivably join a Trump administration, we've just been talking about there, Thomas, the potential future president. Uh, as I understand it, the potential future vice president has been visiting Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lucky, lucky us, Andrew, here in Canada. Tucker Carlson has been on a tour to, as he described it, uh, to liberate Canada from a whole host of things, as I'm sure you can imagine what they might be. He was in Calgary to a sold-out matinee crowd, I think of about 4,000 people. And what's really sort of stirred the, sort of ruffled the feathers here is that he was the guest of the Premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith, and she took the stage with him. And really it was this echo chamber of airing grievances and essentially getting Tucker Carlson to sort of pat her on the back in terms of, yes, I agree with that, isn't it awful, you know, I'm here to to show you how sort of deluded you all are effectively by having someone like Prime Minister Trudeau um, as your leader leading you all to sort of certain oblivion. I mean, it was all, if you like that sort of thing, Andrew, it was sort of Christmas come early. But I think for most of uh, the rest of the country, you know, it raises a question whether the kind of rhetoric that we just heard hearing from Chris there, you know, and the kind of decorum we heard from Marcus earlier, which I think has been a hallmark of Canadian politics as well, historically, is actually being eroded eroded by more establishment parties as we get closer to an election which is expected by the end of next year 2025 at least and I think what you know the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau as he eyes that election will be trying to tie the Conservative Party under the leader Pierre Polyev who's really harnessed these kind of very sort of populist right-wing talking points into the mainstream they'll be trying to tie him I think to this more MAGA extreme sort of Republican the kind of 
political mess, as they describe it, south of the border to try and warn Canadians that that's what will be coming to Canada if they elect him. So, yes, Tucker Carlson's big week here in Canada. Maybe it's kind of a bit of a symbol of the kind of tone we're going to see, unfortunately, in the months to come, Andrew, in the in the politics of the country. But just further on that, Thomas, there will be a lot of people listening to this uh, in various parts of the world, frankly, in almost all of the world other than Canada, uh, who will be regarding the idea of Canadians seething with grievances about how hard done by they are with a certain amount of derisive mirth, uh, I think it's fair to say, Canada being more lavishly blessed in almost every respect than almost every other country. Um, What grievances in particular is a tedious blowhard like Tucker Carlson finding to tap into? Well, there are lots of things that, you know, as with all populist blowhards, to kind of raise there, Andrew, you know, it's it's sort of making pronouncements on very complicated issues without really offering any sort of real watertight solutions for them, but really stoking people's anger and the, the, the you know, the, the things that really rankle them, perhaps the sort of... The, the worst sort of temptations they might feel to all their politicians. And, you know, you have, we have a Prime Minister here, Justin Trudeau, who's been in power for a very long time. He isn't uh, popular and can do no right, really, in the eyes of lots of the country. But I think, you know, where it all begins in my mind anyway, maybe not all begins, but really the flashpoint begins is back in 2022. As you'll remember, Andrew, we spoke at the time from Ottawa when the long-haul truckers had blockaded the capital city for weeks on end, uh, protesting against COVID vaccine mandates. And we had an interesting ruling this week by the Supreme Court of Canada, who actually ruled that Trudeau's government, who uh, put into place these very extraordinary measures to to force the truckers off the streets and away from the capital, that actually the government wasn't justified in using those powers, which I think will have its own political ramifications going forward. Um, That, you know, a lot of, you know, the truckers may have gone home, but actually a lot of the things that they were saying, the mood that they churned up, I don't think has gone away, particularly in lots of conservative heartlands like in the province of Alberta, you know, even parts here of Ontario too. Um, And I think that's what you see with Pierre Polyèvre actually, is really sort of tapping into perhaps even more superficial things that that can then make a good soundbite. But also there are very real things like housing crises in the cities right across the country, you know, inflation, the the messages that we're seeing, the issues that we're seeing at play in other countries too. Uh, But I think, you know, it's about sort of playing to people people's maybe uh, frustration with the the current government, um, but also using a pretty well-used populist playbook, playbook, excuse me, to do so, Andrew. Uh, And just finally and quickly, while we have you, Thomas, um, we should talk about the latest in the post-Brexit journey to the sunlit uplands of this country. I'm pretty sure I remember reading that a UK-Canada trade deal was going to be among the cornucopia of, of benefits of leaving the EU. How is that going? Uh, not too well, Andrew, it seems. <laughs> Yesterday we heard that the UK was suspending, walking away temporarily at least, from a free trade uh, deal discussion with Canada. Uh, now, the UK was sort of benefiting from this kind of rollover uh, deal that the EU and Canada has sort of post-Brexit, and lots of parts of that deal are expiring. So at the end of the year, on the 31st of December, uh, part of the deal concerning agriculture came to an end, so they were trying to 
sort of forge a new deal to allow Canadian beef, for example, uh, into the UK, uh, British cheese into Canada. They couldn't agree on that, so they walked away. And I think coming up in maybe a month or two's time, the part of the deal that uh, looks at uh, automotive parts is also coming up for renewal. So we were already hearing today in the UK sort of car making um, experts raising the alarm bell really about kind of the effect that might have on auto workers in the UK if some kind of agreement isn't reached. So it's not going particularly smoothly right now, Andrew, but I think Canada over the past few years has shown that it is a pretty tough negotiator. Think back to the NAFTA renegotiations with uh, then President Donald Trump. And they seemed, you know, widely regarded to have done very well for themselves out of that renegotiation. So I'm sure they will they will come back to the negotiating table, but will uh, will fight hard for what they want. Thank you, Thomas. And Chris, just to bring you back in finally and very quickly, uh, we've just been reflecting on the week we have just had in the US presidential election. Any, do you want to take a wild swing at what fresh hells await us next week? We've only got about another nine months of this to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I have to say personally, before we get to all the new fresh hells, if you will, in this oh, election race, Lord. I would quite like to see Donald Trump debate Nikki Haley. I wonder if that might happen. Maybe he is just about angry enough with Nikki Haley, the imposter, as he calls her, for daring to suggest that she she had won any votes at all in New Hampshire and that she is still staying in the race until South Carolina. It would be nice if this was not entirely over. I think it would be good also for the Republican Party, frankly, to have one debate, just one debate between these two to sort of highlight the differences in how they look at the world, how they look at democracy, how they look at foreign policy, huge differences there, for example. I don't know if it's going to happen. Probably not. But I would love to see that before we get on to the rather tiring scene, frankly, of Joe Biden and Donald Trump for the next nine months. Chris Chermack and Thomas Lewis, thank you both for joining us. This is The Daily on Monocle Radio. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained, and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture and more. Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code radio 10 to redeem this offer. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. The Hay Literary Festival now commands territory vastly greater than the small town in Wales where its flagship event takes place during the British summer. Hay's annual Columbia programme is underway for the 19th time and in Cartagena right now is Georgina Godwin, host of Monocle Radio's Meet the Writers programme. Uh, Georgina, welcome to The Daily uh, from Cartagena. And first of all, what does Mark Cartagena out from Hayes' myriad other festivals around the world? 
Hi, Andrew. Well, I guess it's it's the first hay of the year um, and it kind of kicks off everything. So we go from Colombia to Panama to Mexico, Peru, Spain, the US and then the UK. But but I think for me, I mean, obviously in common with the rest of the hay fe- festivals, it celebrates the, the best of literature and ideas. But this one really reflects the location. It's in this incredible walled ancient city on the on the Caribbean coast. And it's an open space to talk about cultural legacies of, the, of what is really a, a very storied region when you when you look at its history. There's also uh, a lot of emphasis on south to south collaboration. And I think that's what I really love about it is that the hemisphere is talking to itself. Um, and, and it's become important not just to, to Colombia, but to, to all of the Latin American region. Uh, I think there's a, a much wider cultural impact thanks to the to the regional media partnerships. So there's all sorts of television coverage and, and print coverage of this. Latin America really takes this seriously. So most of what's done here is broadcast or reported to many, many more people in South America who can't actually be here physically. And a lot of the events are free to residents. And of course, there's lots of youth programs, there's workshops, outreach, events for publishing professionals and so on. And it's really all kind of stamped with the indomitable character of the international dialogue director Christina Fuentes who's just brought together this fantastic program. I mean your your descriptions of Cartagena itself I suspect are already uh, inciting seething jealousy from many of our listeners they certainly are from this presenter but even beyond that uh, what are some of the the marquee attractions uh, of the festival this year who have they persuaded to turn up? Oh, there are an extraordinary amount of people. I mean, really fabulous people from Rebecca Solnit to Tina Brown, who I think I just spotted sitting under an umbrella by the pool. Uh, Phil Manzanera, the guitarist from Roxy Music. Uh, we've got Simon Seabag, Montefiore, uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, Andrea Wolf. I mean, just all these really big name thinkers, writers, talkers. Uh, and then uh, alongside that, a kind of great cultural program, lots of music, comedy, dance, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, just a really kind of extraordinary, but very diverse number. I was just talking to uh, Tsitsi Dangarembo, who was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Uh, I had a session with her yesterday. And of course, she's a Zimbabwean writer. Uh, and that was that was wonderful for me to kind of connect with home through her. But that, another example of the kind of South to South, we had a, a Colombian author on there, too. And we were talking about sort of histories of violence, feminism, race, class and how all that plays into their work. And what we think about when we think about the world in, in a bigger way today, the conversation took us on to nationalism, for instance, and all of these very pressing problems that we have in the world today are very present here at the festival. It's very much felt that we are really at at an inflection point. And and what will be your own contribution to these deliberations while you're in Cartagena? You, You mentioned one event you've already hosted. What else do you have on? Well, one of the reasons I'm here is that Phil Manzanera from Roxy Music is is an old friend of mine. We were talking about uh, how he has such a fantastic story to tell, but that he himself is not a writer. But a friend of mine uh, is a ghostwriter. So I put the two together and they produced this wonderful book for a revolution to Roxy, which is all about Phil's life. Uh, And I happened to tell Christina Fuentes, the international director, and she booked us instantly to come here. So, So that's one thing. I'll be speaking to 
Katie Hessel, who's an art historian, who's written this great book about the story of, of art without men. And it just focuses on women artists throughout the ages, um, which is it's absolutely fascinating. That's that's a little bit later on today. Um, and, and just sort of lots of interactions. I'll be interviewing a lot of people uh, to bring home and broadcast on Meet the Writers. And so that's something I'm really looking forward to, all these people that wouldn't normally be able to come to the, into the studio because, of course, what I really like on the programme is, is that eye-to-eye contact. Um, and I mean, really, for me, I'm not in London in January, and who wouldn't want to see David Ellis <laughs> in the swimming costume? <laughs> uh, Georgina Godwin, uh, thank you very much for joining us. We look forward to hearing yet further about it. Uh, this is The Daily on Monocle Radio. You are listening to the Monaco Daily. I'm Chris Chermack. And no, you have not taken a leave from your senses and we have not locked Andrew Muller in the cellar. But we are going to turn the tables on him for this segment because it is once again Australia Day and or Invasion Day, depending on your point of view. Andrew, how patriotic or angry are you feeling right now? Well, as you can see, Chris, I am having it both ways. I am, I am wearing my Australian flag singlet and my hat with corks hanging off it. While Amazing what we can convince our viewers exactly. of. Exactly. While, while, while also maintaining uh, an expression of righteous fury. Um, no, it's, it's, it, it is, uh, for me personally, I am not much moved one way or the other by Australia Day, I have to say. It doesn't really register in my head as a thing in fact, until I realised that you had put it in the running order, I had entirely forgotten that it was today. <laughs> well, given that you have complete non-interest in Australia Day, please do tell us more about why it makes people so angry. Give us sort of the Cliff Notes version of what happens every year and whether it is a bit more or less than usual this year, there are protests, everything else happening. It is, it's been gathering steam steadily, I think I would date it back to 1988, which was the the bicentennial uh, Australia Day. And to fill people in, this commemorates uh, the date in 1788 on which a few boatloads of seasick shoplifters uh, sailed into what is now Sydney Harbour, ran up a British flag and began the work of building the uh, remarkable country I'm lucky to have come from. Um, But ever since then, there's been a greater recognition that there's two ways of looking at this. On the one hand, it was the beginning of something. And on the other hand, it was the end of something i.e. the the undisturbed way of life of the indigenous peoples who had uh, occupied the continent for immemorial uh, millennia. So there has been a a discussion slash row about the propriety of celebrating uh, on what this given what the day represents to the descendants of those indigenous people. And this has been inevitably, if tediously, co-opted into the uh, culture war that we have regrettably imported from the United States. Thanks for that, Chris. Well, speaking of importing from the United (laughs) States, I have to say, though, when you speak of culture war in this context, we have obviously the same argument with Columbus Day, Mm -hmm. which is now Indigenous Peoples Day in many people's minds. What does it say about Australia that instead of picking something at least 
happy alternative like Indigenous Peoples Day, you pick Invasion Day as the alternative way to describe it. Well, I, I will not pretend to understand or to explain or to represent how Indigenous Australians see this because I am not one of them. Um, there's not one of the, the, the... I think this year it's there's added impetus to it because, of course, this occurs a matter of months after the defeat of the referendum, which would have enshrined in our constitution an Indigenous voice to Parliament. So I think nerves are a little raw than usual. Um, But there is also the difficulty that one of the reasons the argument keeps recurring is there's no clear answer to the question, well, if not this, then what? Mm. Um, if, If we decide to make January 26th the day that we commemorate the dispossession of the Indigenous peoples, and I don't think you would get a majority of Australians on board for that. It's then, well, which other date do we pick as our national day? No no one, least of all me, is saying that we shouldn't, like every country does, have one day in the year where we all get together and celebrate how bloody marvellous we are, but no one's really sure what other date it could be. Well, just finally, uh, Andrew, I'm just curious, what was your sense of what has happened over the last couple of days? Are you sad to see Captain Cook's statue go? Um, I'm I'm not, I have to say, a massive fan of... uh you know, out of context statue toppling. And in this particular case, it's exceedingly vexing to a pedant like myself, because of course, Australia Day has absolutely nothing to do with Captain Cook, uh, who arrived in Australia 18 years ahead of the first fleet. My, My own view for what infinitesimal little it is worth is that Australia has actually already solved the problem of how to observe Australia Day. We just haven't realised that we've done it. To my mind, sincerely, there is nothing more noble any country could do, I don't think, than once a year have a big old row about the kind of country we have been, the kind of country we think we would like to be. My, my genuine worry is that if another date was picked, um, then we would lose this annual discussion uh, of what is Australia's great underpinning anxiety, i.e. our treatment over the last 200-odd years of our Indigenous peoples. I think the discussion can still be valuable. Isn't that the way every country is going these days, a debate about the good and the bad sides every Independence Day? Andrew Muller, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Daily. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. I am once again Andrew Muller. I have wrested back control from the usurper. Uh, Just to say finally on today's show, the question, what does it mean to be, in inverted commas, cute? It turns out there is an entire exhibition dedicated to cuteness occurring right here at Somerset House in London. Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs went along to see what cute is all about. It's really tricky to define it, but in a way, that's the point of cuteness. It's unpin-downability is the thing that makes it interesting. So quite often, it can be lots of things all at once. It's very rarely just one thing or another, but that's what makes it so fascinating. Claire Catterall is a senior curator at Somerset House. Cute might be hard to define, but it's certainly not difficult to picture. The new exhibition, Cute, which explores the idea of cuteness in contemporary culture, is an explosion of pink, glitter and bows. And cats. Lots of cats. 
While an obsession with the cute and cuddly might seem tied to our modern world and internet culture, the origin story of cuteness stretches far back into the depths of history. I mean, you can trace it right back, you know, to ancient Greece, for example, with the word acutus, which is where cute comes from, but also to ancient Japan, where they, you know, all the art depicts very cute animals. But our exhibition really starts in the 19th century. So one of the first artists that we show is a photographer called Harry Pointer. And this can be seen as the first cat meme. So Harry Pointer photographed his pet cats in very anthropomorphic poses, uh, like them roller skating, for example, or having tea parties. And then he would add a little caption like, hi, you know, hi, I'm skating. And he would make these into little postcards. And because of like mass production, you know, mass printing techniques, they became really popular. And people, of course, used to buy them and send them to each other. So you can absolutely see that these were the first cat memes. From Victorian cat memes to Hello Kitty spaghetti hoops, not to mention video games and Harajuku street style, at the very least, this exhibition shows the sheer force of the cute aesthetic. And cuteness isn't just about things being sweet. It's wrapped up in much larger questions of power. That's... One of the interesting things about cuteness, I think people will come to the show thinking they know what cuteness is and that it's this adorable aesthetic. But in fact, there is so much more to cuteness than meets the eye. And one thing that's really interesting about cuteness is it does have this extraordinary power. So it makes you want to care for it, which is why quite often cute things present themselves as sad. So if you notice, there'll be toys, you know, that looks a bit sad, um, or artwork that shows children crying. And of course, it all breaks our hearts. And the first thing we want to do is buy it. So that's the thing, because cuteness has this incredible power over people. And it's also what makes it such a great consumer product, because it makes you want to buy it. The world of the cute, which is kind of a feeling more than anything else, is layered and complicated. It's far stranger than we might think at first. The line between cute and creepy is often fuzzy, or maybe it's fluffy. I really loved the way that, because cuteness is so ambiguous, and quite often it's neither one thing or the other, or it could be all things at once. So, for example... You have cute characters that are young and old at the same time, say Yoda, for example, Baby Yoda, or E.T. E.T. Phone home. Sort of young and old, ugly, but really, really cute. So it's kind of extraordinary and a bit confusing. But what's really interesting thing about it is that it sort of allows for things that are other or things that exist outside of the norm to be accepted and loved even and adored. When you think about it, you know, for people who feel themselves outside of the norm for whatever reason, even women, for example, are othered, but there's whole sort of swathes of our community that feel othered in one way or another. And the way that cuteness can help them 
find their community and find validation, I think, is, is really important. And it, it was one of the things that sort of made me think cuteness has this incredible power that can be really used for the good. To harness the power of cute for good and to bring people together is surely a noble aim. And it's true that the sheer playfulness on display at Somerset House did put a little pep in my step. You can find me in the Hello Kitty disco. Thank you, Sophie. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to our guests today, Steve Crawshaw, Marcus Hippie, Chris Chermack, Thomas Lewis, Georgina Godwin, and indeed myself. Today's show was produced by Chris Chermack and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Daily is back at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening. Thank you.